Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you are and all that you do. Everything you do is a beautiful, wonderful expression of your character, your will and your purpose. And Lord, we love to learn and to hear about what you have done. But this morning especially, we love to be reminded of what you have done that made it possible for us to be in a relationship with our Creator again. Thank you uh, for what you have done. Lord, we pray that as we look to your word that you might minister to us to remind us uh, of what Jesus has done on the cross, why it is good news and why it is the only hope for all of mankind. Uh, work in us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when I was living in Victoria, I know I've mentioned a few times before that I used to be involved in a prison ministry at Fulham Correctional Centre. It was a medium security prison and my role there in particular was to lead a Bible study. And I can tell you that some of the questions that I got and some of the answers I've got, I have never heard again in a church-based Bible study. But there was one thing that you could always be assured of. They would give their honest answer. I mean, they had nothing to lose. It's not slowly like I'm going to lose a friend if, if I say something he doesn't like. So they felt free and open to say whatever was on their mind. To give you an example of the type of honesty that you'd encounter at times, one of the guys who came in with us, Jared, who liked to um, sort of stir the pot in some of his conversations with people, he was chatting with one of the prisoners who said, I love everybody. And Jared, knowing some of the general dispositions uh, of people within the prison, says, what do you think of pedophiles? To which this guy who once said, I love everybody, says, I hate them. There are certain crimes that in the setting of a prison don't get a great deal of sympathy. Now one time in the Bible study, I decided to take that angle and bring it into a question to sort of challenge them. I said, imagine this scenario. Imagine you are a judge... And before you is a serial pedophile. Which of these two options would you like to see to be the outcome of that trial? Either A, this guy has turned his life around, therefore, based on what you see, you just want to let him go, or B, give him the full extent of justice. And every single person in the room, without a doubt, says, give him the full extent of justice and penalty. And because I don't like to stir things a little bit as well, I said, okay, let's, let's change the story a little bit. Same scenario, you're the judge, there's a serial pedophile before you, but he's also your child. What outcome do you want now? And their face changed a little bit because everything in them wants to say, pedophile, give them everything they want, but they also had a love for the guilty. And they wanted to do, have some more grace and do something for their benefit. Not a perfect analogy, but it's kind of a picture of the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of the penalty paid. We see justice served in full. But we see the grace and mercy of one who is compassionate 
towards the guilty. God himself is the one who acts both to satisfy justice, but also to graciously and mercifully benefit the guilty. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. The first is why crucify Jesus? Secondly, the event, what actually took place? And thirdly, why Jesus' death makes for a good Friday? Firstly, why crucify Jesus? Now, for someone, if you were not familiar with the Bible, you'd probably ask the question, why did they crucify Jesus? Because everything you would hear about him would suggest he's a nice guy. People like hearing about Jesus, all the things that he did to help people, how loving he was. I think, how would he end up with such a cruel punishment as crucifixion? He's not the sort of person that you think of when you get the idea of someone you would consider to be a criminal. So why did Jesus end up get, getting punished in this way? And the Bible actually gives you two answers to that question. How did Jesus end up at the cross? A, one from the Jewish leaders' perspective and their plans, and B, from God's perspective and his plan. Firstly, from the Jewish leaders' perspective, in a Gospel of Mark, which has 16 chapters, you don't have to go any further than the third chapter before the religious leaders want to see Jesus killed. Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and this is what happened. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That didn't take long. This is pretty early days in Jesus' ministries. They want him wiped out. After Jesus cleared the temple, he comes in there, finds people selling all sorts of things, and he rebukes them, saying, you have turned my father's house of prayer for the nations into a den of robbers. And then in response to that, the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then on top of all of this, Jesus made claims about who he was, his identity, making himself equal with God. In John's Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Taking the word that God had revealed of himself to be the I am in Exodus 3.14. Also in John 10, 30 to 33, After Jesus says, I and the Father are one, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Simple answer is, Jesus didn't fit the mould. Jesus didn't fit their expectations. The fact that he was becoming popular, people were going out to hear his teaching, they were amazed at what he did, at what he's taught, and the Jewish leaders didn't like it. The attention was shifting from them to Jesus. And then his claims to be God, not only was that offensive to their beliefs, but it also had their other purpose, they're like, Great. 
This is blasphemy. Blasphemy deserves death. But did Jesus really die as a victim of a plot of the jealous Jewish leaders? And the simple answer to that question is, no, he did not. Before he upset or offended any of the Jewish leaders, God had a plan that made it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. I'd say the actions of the Jewish leaders were the instruments to fulfill God's bigger plan. For example, even before Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel said this to to Joseph, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So before any of the Jewish leaders got jealous, before any of the Jewish leaders got offended by anything Jesus did or said, God had planned before Jesus was even born, he would be a saviour of people from their sins. Now, Joseph was probably questioning, how? How is he going to save the people from his sins? Well, Jesus' own articulation of that in chapter 10, verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, sorry, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. From Jesus' perspective, this is why he came, was to give up his life. Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident, was not his life being cut short. It was the very purpose for his coming. So much so, we saw back in chapter 8 that Jesus says it was necessary, it was essential. What Jesus taught is that the Son of Man must necessarily suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. So the reason why Jesus ends up on a cross is it is the will of God to save sinners and it was the only way to save sinners. But the means or the instruments that God used to bring Jesus to the cross was the will and actions of the Jewish leaders. So let's have a look at what happened and also why it makes for a good Friday. So we've seen the backstory, how Jesus ended up on the cross, kind of the pathway of the recent events, because it's been a while since we were preaching through this part in Mark. On the night before, the Thursday night, Jesus was having a meal with his disciples. In the middle of that meal, he instituted what we would now call the Lord's Supper or communion that we will be sharing in a little bit later, where he took the bread, broke it and said, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, took the cup, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me. But also in the middle of that meal, Judas who had arranged previously for a sum of money to betray Jesus, goes back to the religious leaders um, to give them the sign and the ways in which they would reveal where Jesus' location was to hand him over to be arrested. Jesus was arrested. He went through a trial both before the Jewish leaders and before Pilate. But even though Jewish law called for death, for blasphemy, 
Jewish law called for death by stoning. Yet what the Jewish leaders were insisting happened to Jesus wasn't that he got stoned, but rather that he be crucified. Now crucifixion was the the greatest punishment that the Romans had. It was considered so vile that if you were a Roman citizen, you weren't allowed to have it. But as Jesus is before Pilate, it's interesting that the person who had the power and authority to sentence Jesus on three occasions says, why? I find no guilt in him. He is innocent. What has he done? But the Jewish leaders and the crowds that they've inspired by their message continue to insist, crucify him. Now, Pilate, on a number of occasions, tried to release Jesus. His first attempt was knowing that there was a tradition that at this time of year that they would let go some criminals. So they thought, we've got Barabbas, a guy who was in the insurrection and a murderer. How about, who do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? Thinking they would choose Jesus. But they said, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. So Pilate's plan B was, how about we get Jesus flogged? That way we we show that we've given him a good solid punishment, but then we'll let him go. But the only answer they would accept was crucify him. Mark's account of it probably summarises that whole scenario very briefly, but puts it all together. When they cried out, crucify him, Pilate said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, not because he's become convinced there was a, that he'd done anything evil, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Which leads us to where we came to in our reading. Here is Jesus. He has been flogged. On the way to the cross, it was normal that you would wear a sign that kind of said the nature of the crime that you had committed and you would carry your own cross to the place of execution. But presumably because of the flogging that he endured, he was unable to carry it any further. At which point Simon the Cyrene carries the cross on Jesus' behalf. For those wondering about geography, where Cyrene is, is in the northern part there of Africa, see there with a little red arrow, Uh, Simon, most likely a Jew, um, who was there on this particular occasion. Probably he'd come there for Passover festival. And he's carried that all the way to the place of crucifixion, a location that was outside of the boundaries of that town, which was the common practice both for Jews and for Romans. The author of Hebrews describes it in this way, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now the actual location in which Jesus was crucified, there are a couple of different speculations as to the exact location. The two most common are these two here on the screen. On the left, the church of the Holy Sepulchre, built after the event. Um, or Golgotha, or Gordon's tomb, because it's often described as the place of the skull, and if you look at that kind of picture there, the rocks there do form an image like a skull. Most archaeologists would presume the place where the church is now located, but in the event, 
overall scheme of things, the actual location is not the significant matter, but the fact that Jesus was crucified does matter. And this is not just something that the Bible speaks about. Secular history confirms that Jesus Christ was crucified during the time of Pontius Pilate. As Jesus is on the cross, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. You know, the, the intent of doing that was to dull the pain. But Jesus, who had come to bear the punishment on behalf of sinful mankind, would have no bar of it. He didn't want to distance himself in any way from the very purpose for which he came. And the language is simple. They just say, and they crucified him. You think, man, Mel Gibson could span out a couple of hours. The Bible gives us one sentence. Because first century people, they knew exactly what it was. They didn't need it to be described in detail. They would see it was a common event. They knew all the gross details that it, that it entailed. If the cross was brought to the location, he'd be stripped. Ropes would be put around his arms and his legs. And a nail would go through his wrist, wrists and his heels. Archaeologists have even found this is not Jesus's, but they something a date from the first century, a heel bone with nails through it. This was the cruelest punishment that has ever existed. It could go for hours, it could go for days, depending on the condition of the person. The final result was death by suffocation. It was long and it was painful. But the sign that was placed above him said, the king of the Jews. When you read through John's gospel, you see how, how Pilate kind of wrote that, almost as a, as a taunt to the Jewish leaders who had kind of blackmailed him into, into having Jesus crucified. When they say, no, if you don't do this, we're going we're gonna to tell Caesar and you're going to be in all sorts of trouble. But even though they didn't like that description... Jesus was the king of the Jews. When Jesus was asked, are you the Messiah? He simply says, I am. In fact, the sign didn't say enough. He was more than the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of all creation. And so there he was crucified in between two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And it's fitting that Jesus is alongside people who are genuinely guilty as he came to identify with and to die on behalf of sinful mankind. And according to Luke's Gospel in chapter 23, one of those two other criminals placed their faith in Jesus Christ on that cross by his side. But while Jesus was there... It wasn't enough that he was there. They continued to mock him. They wagged their heads, which was a sign of contempt, but also in fulfilment of what was written in Psalm 22, where it says, All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And they continue in their taunts and their mockery, Save yourself. You saved others. Save yourself. 
Three times they put that challenge to Jesus. Save yourself. Jesus could have saved himself, but he would have had to completely forfeit his mission to do so. Jesus didn't come into this world to save himself. Jesus came to this world to save sinners. And the way in which he came into this world to save sinners was to die on their behalf as a punishment for their sin. Likewise, the people said to him, come down that we might see and believe. Jesus could have come down, but if he did come down, they would have had nothing significant to believe in. He had to die. Why did he have to die? Well, the Bible's from start to finish, is one big narrative. It all makes sense as it fits together. And from the beginning, God created mankind. He created everything. He provided them and blessed them with everything to enjoy. They were in right relationship with their creator, their king. They had perfect relationships with one another. There was no trouble, difficulty whatsoever, sadness in the world, sickness. It was perfect. The time when it started to go pear-shaped was the moment when they decided to question, is God really good? Do we need God? There was just one tree they were told not to eat from. They could eat from all the others. They had everything to enjoy. Yet in one moment, as the serpent came, they thought, is God really good if he says I can't have this? Is God worth trusting or are we better living for ourselves? And that's effectively what sin is. Sin is not just a list of bad things we do. It is saying, I don't need God. I'm not going to recognise he has given me life and breath and everything. I'm going to live like he doesn't exist. Now, if you were a parent, someone would probably say that you were an unloving parent if you just let your kid do whatever they wanted, hurt whatever they, whoever they wanted in the process, if you did absolutely nothing, they'd say, you are an unloving parent. And for God to be good, and God is perfectly good, he too must do something. When people rebel, and as a result of their rebellion, not only is there a rebellion against him, but in their rebellion, they hurt one another around them. He must act against evil he had to punish he had to issue justice to the full a little bit like that dilemma i put to that prison bible study justice had to be served but he also had a deep love for the guilty acted for their benefit and graciously bore their punishment upon himself but jesus as god our judge and the one whom we have offended by our sin deals with our sin and punishment in full but also acts for the benefit of the guilty to restore us to God. Now crucifixion was common. It happened all the time. But this one was not a common crucifixion. In the sixth hour, which is around about midday, darkness came over the land until three o'clock in the afternoon. You don't tend to see darkness between 12 and 3, not even here in a Toowoomba winter. In Amos chapter 8, it says this, 
On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth upon every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. And Jesus, having uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, I remember one year I read that and I thought, temple curtain torn in two, which one? Was it something that separated the court of Gentiles, where the Gentiles could go no further? Was it kind of symbolic of the idea of now everyone has same kind of access? Or was it the temple that goes to the Holy of Holy, that place where the high priest would go once a year to offer atonement on behalf of the nations? And so I decided I was going to message John Dixon, who's an expert in historical Jesus here in Australia back in 2018. I said, is there anything like historically that says one way or the other? And his response was to say that there was no curtain between the court of Gentiles and the temple proper. There was a giant wall with a warning which basically said, if you go past here, you're going to die if you're, if you're a Gentile. It was a curtain separating the holy of holy. Jeez. That didn't include the full message. The holy of holies is the place that formerly one high priest on one day a year could enter into that place where the presence of God was said to dwell and even then could only come in a right manner having purified himself and with the blood of a sacrifice that had been offered. Now that Jesus has offered the final once-for-all sacrifice, now everyone can come into his presence because of his sacrifice. Even though the temple continued to stand for another 40 years after this, its purpose had come to its fulfilment. The temple was the place in which people would normally come to come into the presence of God to have their sins atoned for. Now Jesus, the greater temple, has come. He's the place in which we now come into the presence of God and is the one in whom the fulfilment of all atonement for sin has been done once and for all. And by the side of the cross where a centurion stood, looked upon Jesus as he breathed his last and says, Truly this man was the Son of God. Isn't that a stark picture? Here are the Jewish leaders, the people who should have rightly recognised who Jesus was, hurling insults. Yet this Roman centurion, a Gentile, looks upon Jesus and says, Surely this man was the Son of God. It makes me think of how sad it is to have so many with religious upbringings where we go to church every, every single Sunday but it still have not come to a point where they have seen Jesus rightly. But I suppose the encouraging side of that is, like the centurion, there can be someone who's hearing about Jesus for the first time, hasn't got the background of someone who's grown up with that, and they just simply know this man was the Son of God who died for my sin. That could be somebody who's hearing this message today. So why does Jesus' death make for a good Friday? 
We've seen how Jesus got there. This was the plan, will of God. This was the plan of Jesus, why he came into this world to lay down his life as a ransom for many. But from the world's perspective, it's got to sound strange that we would call it Good Friday, that the central figure of our faith died on that day. Now, if Jesus was crucified and that was the end of the story, then, yeah, that would be a little bit silly, wouldn't it, to call that a good day? In fact, even the Bible would agree with that too. If Jesus just died, end of story, then all we're doing here is a bit of a waste of time. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. There you go, that's what the Bible says. If Jesus just died on a cross, if there's no resurrection, you're still in your sins, your faith's a complete waste of time and you should be the most pitied people on this earth. But Jesus was raised on the third day. We'll go into more details about that as we meet again together on 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Jesus' death is good news because it is the answer to the bad news that affects every single person who has been born into this world. That bad news is expressed by Paul in his letters through Roman church. In Romans 3 he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says all have sinned. A little lesson in Greek, that word translated as all means all. Every single one of us have sinned. Romans 6.23, three chapters later, for the wages of sin, or what we get as a result of our sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in a legal sense, we're all guilty before the judge whom we will one day all stand before. Not only is he the judge, but he is the one that we have offended. And he doesn't say all have sinned and are justified by doing a certain number of good deeds. All have sinned, he says, and the only means by which we are brought near to Christ that we inherit eternal life is through the gracious work of redemption done by Jesus Christ on the cross. The same God who is judge, the same God whom we, our sin was against, is a God who is gracious and merciful, who has entered into our world, who has stood in our place, died a death in our place, that by us turning from our sin, placing our trust in Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. So often you hear people say, you should be embarrassed. Your God died. Embarrassed? Well, maybe if Jesus was killed against his will. Maybe if he wasn't raised on the third day. Maybe if Jesus dying on a cross wasn't actually his plan. Yeah, that could be a little bit embarrassing. 
But in reality, there is absolutely no shame at all in Jesus' death. Jesus' death is absolutely central to the only hope for all of mankind. Hence why Paul can say to that church in Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel that is of Jesus' death and resurrection. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's no shame in Jesus' death. There's no embarrassment about the fact that our our Saviour has died. It was necessary. It was the only means by which all of us who are guilty before God can have our sins forgiven. So we will not be ashamed of Jesus' death. We will not be ashamed that he rose again. We will not be ashamed of the message of the gospel because it is the power of God. It is the only hope for mankind, all of whom have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that by his death and resurrection, as we turn from our sin and place our trust in Jesus, we're no longer under judgment. There's no condemnation. The debt has been paid. Sins are forgiven. We're no longer enemies of God. We are at peace with God. We have his spirit live within us to guide us and to transform us. And we have a future hope a present hope, a hope for all eternity and eternal life given freely as the gift of God to those who call upon him in faith. Jesus' death is reason to celebrate as a good Friday. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it was your plan to provide a saviour for, for our sin. We know that other than you acting on our behalf, we were completely without any hope of being reconciled to you, without any hope of escaping your, your justice, your wrath and your judgment. Lord, we thank you that you are good and just and you did not just ignore our sin because we thought, ah, he's cute, we'll give him a second crack. But justice was served in full because you are a just and good God. But you're also merciful and gracious that you have provided the way that anyone, regardless of the extent of their sin, can turn from their sin, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who died in our place and who rose in victorious over sin, death and Satan. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us to provide salvation, but also the grace by which you uh, continue to work in us to transform us in lives of holiness, purity and righteousness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.